Programming Throwdown, episode 148, Package Management with Max Howell. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So um, if you have used any OS, which is everybody who's listening to this, even if you're on your phone, you have had to deal with installing software and managing software of various ways, shapes, and forms. And if you're a developer, you also have to deal with libraries, you know, static, shared libraries, um, all sorts of ancillary packages. And that makes package management a real challenge and, and, and a real opportunity to learn more about the OS. So we're going to kind of dive into all of that and talk about some other stuff that Max has been up to. So we'll jump right into it. We have Max Howell, who's the CEO of TXYZ and the creator of Homebrew. Thanks so much, Max, for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Cool. So one thing we kind of lead in is just talking about the whole remote revolution, which uh, you know, it's almost like two years old now. But uh, I think it's it's still kind of worth talking about, especially with when folks are you know, starting new ventures. Um, you know, when you um, you know, started TXYZ, you know, did you start it during the pandemic? Was it pre post pandemic? And and how are you handling remote work and return to office and all of these things? Yeah, that's no, a good question, especially nowadays. Like I'm uh, personally. Like I feel that I started remote because I started with open source. It's how I got into programming. And the first bunch of people that I worked with were all over the world. We had a bunch of people in Europe, some people in America, and some people in Australia. So for me, I, it was just always the natural way to work. And so when I got my first professional job in an office, I didn't like it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like the commute, it sucked and having to get there. But, that you know, certainly some great things about being in person, like some ideas only form when you're like bantering around the table. So what was your commute like? Uh, when I, I started working in London, I live in the US now, but I uh, this was a while ago. And I lived an hour north of London by train. Is that Chelmsford? I have an aunt in Chelmsford. I don't know. And she says that's north of London. There's probably a million places north of London, but I figured I'd throw a dart at the dartboard. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, I don't know Chelmsford. This, yeah, this happens a lot where people are like, oh, do you know this like tiny little yeah. town in Britain? No, actually, I probably should. I probably should know better. But no, I um, lived in Milton Keynes, which is where some of my family still live, about an hour north of London kind of famous city for being kind of modeled on the American model of how cities should be with lots of fast roads and big malls and things. And so uh, uh, I liked it for that. I've been to uh, Melton Mowbray, which is completely the opposite. Melton Mowbray, they're, I think they're famous for growing honey. And it was, it was very rural, which I think is, is like a nice, nice break if you've been in urban towns for a while. Melbourne Mowbray is famous for their pork pies, in fact. Oh, and, uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're delicious. And uh, one of the things I miss most, I think this, I think I say there's like three things I miss from Britain, and uh, pork pies is one. <laughs> they all begin nice. with tea. I miss pork pies, pubs, and plugs, the, uh, the British plugs, electrical socket oh. plugs. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Why do you miss those? I don't know too much about the differences there. Yeah, well, uh, obviously the British plugs are famous for being ugly and enormous, 
But um, for someone who's passionate about design, they're they're very well designed. They're kind of beautifully so. Uh, ah, with okay. Numerous like safety and convenience features built in. Let's see if I can remember them all. It's been a while since I've done this uh, this tirade. Uh, but for for one, they stay in the socket, so you can hang them from the ceiling. And they have like they were des- deliberately designed to have like a lot of tension around the the uh, the plug parts. What do you call them? Uh, the yeah, bits the, that stick the, out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that you could yeah like hang things from them. Interesting. The, mandatory earthing, so it's like a safety feature. And every every single socket has to have an external switch, so you can turn it off at the wall. Uh, every plug must have a fuse in it, so it's uh, fused safety-wise as well. And then the earth prong, prong, that's the word, is slightly longer than the other two, so it goes in first. Another safety feature, so it's always grounded. And the electrical, the two that are actually live, the socket in the wall has covers over those so that you can't like stick a finger or a fork in them. And the covers only get removed when the earth pin goes in. That's why it's slightly longer. So it makes a mechanism that then reveals the live connection. So there's no point where there's a hole that you can stick something in while you're using the plug unless you like, you know, force it open somehow. Uh, that's probably all I can remember. But, you know, I, I've always been like passionate about like these little bits of design that not everybody notices that are just like hidden there. And so like I thought that was a bunch of neat things that someone spent the time to do a better job than American plugs, which are terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what happened to me there is this house is a few decades old. And um, when we moved into it, I had the, uh, the ring door chime plugged in in one of the outlets. Uh, and I came back a few days later and it was on the floor. It had just fallen out of the outlet. And so then I went through and and uh, had to replace a bunch of the outlet um, things that are wired into the wall. And sure enough, yeah, I wasn't that careful and I gave myself a shock. So I got the, it wasn't the 220, but I got the, what is it, 115 volt going through me for a moment, which did not feel good. You know, that's certainly possible with the American ones. But, you know, British, British voltage is 240, so that'll kill you. Oh, 240, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's part of the reason that there's all that extra safety in there. And like they are enormous. So like if you have, you know, typical desks set up for a computer, <laughs> the whole length of the desk will be like sockets behind it because like, you need that much space. So not everything <laughs> is great. That makes sense. So you were uh you were commuting an hour away into London. Was it by mass transit or you were driving it? Yeah. Yeah, like uh, one thing that is nice about Europe was that you could get everywhere by train or bus, etc. Uh, so I'd cycle to the to the train station, get on the train, which was usually on time. This isn't German levels of promptness in Britain, but it was, <laughs> wasn't too bad. I think the British give that system a hard time when it's relatively good. 40 minutes on the train, that would drop me at London Euston. So I'd get, get on the escalator, go down onto the, the subway, and then ride about five, six stops to Old Street, Shoreditch, which is famous in London for being full of startups. I think it probably still is that and uh yeah that's where last time was um so yeah that was that was the office trip ah interesting and so that i always you know i I felt like mass transit is better than sitting in a car for an hour but uh i did feel like i'm a pretty tall person so i was always kind of cramped so i was kind of hunched over my laptop 
uh, you know, and, and every time the, the bus runs over a speed bump or something, the seat, you know, kind of partially closes my laptop and I have to open it again. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's much <laughs> nicer to kind of roll out of bed into the office. <laughs> it's way better. Yeah. Well, I did that for a bit while I went to last film because I commuted for a year and then decided it was enough and I was going to move to London, but I didn't want to be in the situation of rushing to find a flat. So I took a tent and lived on the roof of the office for about what? three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, an abandoned lift shaft, and at the top it was sealed, and I stuck my tent in there. Um, I, never, I didn't tell my boss, and they found out and were very happy about it, but it wasn't their building, so they went too fast. So, so yeah, you went three months. How did a custodian not see that there was a tent there? <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know, like British landlords are very thorough, I guess. <laughs> wow, that is wild. But I did literally like get out of bed, stumble downstairs. After after a few weeks, I uh, you know wore my pajamas downstairs, brushed my teeth, <laughs> got some coffee, and everyone was just used to it. It was uh, a real startup way of uh, existence for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, the uh, they don't have that giant HR department to kind of crack crack the whip <laughs> yeah. on that. There was an issue uh, at. There was an issue at Google where people were sleeping in the conference rooms. That was a really big deal because I think it's also, you know, the rent is probably similar to London. The rent is so expensive that you could save you know, an entire year's salary if you just found a way to sleep <laughs> at the office. You know? Yeah, well, I can understand why they would be doing it for that reason. Well, London's pricey, but it's not San Francisco. People are more used to like, sharing flats, as they call it. Ah, cool. So it sounds like TXYZ is fully remote, or at least embraces remote since the beginning. Yes, uh, we already have, uh, we just hired someone from India. It's a bit America-centric at the moment for me. Like One of the things I wanted to do with this company is because it's commercial open source, and for me, open source is about, it's a global thing. It's not a Western thing, it's not an American thing, it's not a European thing. I said from the start, I want someone in every time zone. So it was always going to be like this split company. And like, as I say, for me, I started in open source and I was used to waking up and people had been working overnight and I'd have to figure out how to slot that work back in with what I was doing and then make sure that we were planning from, you know, like not being able to talk to each other uh, in person, even even over the phone. So, you know, uh, it was natural for me to want this company to be that way and for to know how to manage that from the start. And so we're, we're gradually getting to that point. And, yeah, uh, we do have a uh, an, an office in Puerto Rico, which is where we're founded. We call it the Tea House. And uh, it's a fun place that is more of a house than an office, several floors for working and several floors for sleeping. So that when we do, we'll meet up and we'll be meeting up next month. There's places for people to stay, and so we 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 say hi for a few days, and uh, you can do that more with the fact that you know we're a funded company than I ever could be ever could when we were doing open source. I remember when I was working on apps for Linux and things like that back in like 2005 or so, and we would meet up like once a year, all of us who were working on uh, whatever it was, and you know that was paid for generously by donations from the community. But not everyone could always make it because, you know, people were from all over the world. But it was good just to say hi, see what people are like, have a few drinks and dinner with people, play some games, doing doing things that are, you know, not the standard things. And I think remote companies 
need to recognize the fact that you do have to meet up once in a while and you need to do things that aren't just work because otherwise you have people that are just building relationships and all it ever is is work related like at tea we have every month we play a game of werewolf over zoom the point of that is to just like make sure that people you know shout at each other a bit (laughs) essentially in like in in a good spirited way get some uh get some emotional contact and like just get to know each other as friends not just colleagues yeah that makes sense do you do you try to meet in person like once a quarter once a year once a month what's the cadence there and does does that how does that affect things yeah we're doing once a quarter like the company was founded uh, last december but we only finished securing the first round in april and then we've been staffing up since then so we're still quite small and only recently uh, exceeded like 12 to 13 people. We don't really have a pattern to it yet, but the plan is uh, every quarter indeed. And so far that's working. Cool. That makes sense. So I want to kind of work us up to to Homebrew, which I'm sure anybody out there who uses Mac is is familiar with, but kind of work us through, you know, how did you get into open source and, um, you know, kind of what was the journey that led you to kind of put the pen down and say, I'm going to build, build homebrew? You know, what was that, what was that whole progression like? So uh, programming has always been a hobby for me. Uh, my dad sat me down in front of a BBC Micro, which was this computer that everyone in Britain had in the, the 90s. Uh, I still don't know if the BBC just like slapped their logo on it or they actually, you know, had had an active hand in making it, the the British Broadcasting Corporation. But it was called the BBC Micro. And um, my dad sat me down in front of it and taught me a bit of programming one day. And I really got something out of it. So I kept coming back to it as a hobby. So was your dad an engineer, or what was he a hobbyist, or how did that work? Yeah, he was a he was just a hobbyist as well. He uh, dabbled in many different things over his life, but he was super passionate about electronics. And then when personal computing became a thing, he was like first in line to pick one up. Uh, he was always very interested in it, but yeah, he never did it as a career or anything. And like his programming ability was pretty amateur, but it was enough to like get me the spark, so that. I could understand how to progress. Well, part of the reason it was easy with the BBC Micro is because it booted straight to a, a prompt that was BBC Basic, so a basic programming language. That It wasn't a, ba- a shell like Bash. It was a shell which was programming. And so I could like straight away get into like writing little programs. And so obviously I made games, and I made games for years little toys i remember one time i started making something that i called windows 4 because uh, of the time <laughs> windows 3.1 was the thing and like i was just experimenting essentially and at school during my lunch break there was a little clique of us geeks who'd go in and like just program stuff and uh we competed to see who could like make the first like scrolling adventure game and things like that and like put music on it um, oh, so nice. it was always something that I really enjoyed, but of course the school didn't teach. It wasn't, it wasn't a lesson. This was mm-hmm. the nineties. So it, it wasn't something that was typically taught and I never really considered it as a career. So I ended up going to, I got a master's in chemistry and, um, it, the third year of my degree, I went off to work in industry 
uh, for a year. And for the first month, I really enjoyed it. And I was like messing around with the, the big machines and having some fun. Now, like, just sorry, when I think of chemists, I have this stereotype of a person in a lab coat with a beaker and a pipette, you know, mixing like fluids. Like, is that is that what you did? Or like, kind of like, can you educate us on like, what do chemists do? Well, you're not far off, honestly. Did have the lab coat? I worked in a physical <laughs> chemistry lab. So there's three kinds of chemistry, organic, inorganic, and physical. It's like strange how the first two are just complements of each other physical chemistry so it had more math and oh. more physics in it than most chemistry and this is the rawer one like as physicists will tell you like physics is the real science and then everything else is an applied version of physics and, <laughs> yeah. yeah you know physical chemistry was really them saying yeah it's true <laughs> but, you know <laughs> chem- chemistry is just at the end of the day like raw physics going on down there like electrons are just strange little anyway i won't teach chemistry on this podcast but <laughs> <laughs> so i was doing physical chemistry which mostly meant like i was measuring physical properties of different things that other people in other labs had made so okay. i was measuring sur- the surface tension of surfactants because i worked at kodak there was a big kodak factory in london at the time, um, I heard recently it's closed down. Obviously, Kodak haven't done so well over the last 20 years. Right. This right. was uh, 2002, I think. Uh, so I was measuring surface tension. And for a while, I, I used this like large machine that I had to calibrate and get the hang of it. And I enjoyed mastering the machine. Um, but then I went home for Christmas. And while I was there, I realized that I hated it. <laughs> the work was boring. Mm-hmm. And I fell into this huge depression over the next six months where I realized that I hadn't picked the right thing for my career and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I started programming again because it seemed like it was fun. I installed Linux and I found like open source. Essentially, I discovered open source as, as like just a route trying to find something else to do with myself. Now, how did you do that? So, so this is the '90s, right? So, were you on? Uh, you you weren't on America Online. You weren't on America Online because you're in the UK. But you're on some. Uh, uh, you know, like yeah. What was what was the discovery process like back then? Yeah, well, different certainly. So, so it was 2002. So not quite oh, okay, okay. as nascent. We had broadband internet, so you had an always-on connection where you didn't have to dial up and uh right the web was was coming along the web was certainly coming along before stack overflow and things like that obviously so yeah like i just got i i heard of linux because of some of the places on the internet i'd been in the late 90s i used to hang out on this uh music player forum for this music player called sonic there was like two major because like MP3s obviously changed how music was and how mm-hmm. it's consumed, and that was a relatively exciting period in the internet. So there was like Winamp was the big one, right? And right, it still exists. Uh, I don't know if anyone still uses it. Like AOL bought it. Oh, and that's there was right. That one Sonic, uh, which was a much smaller one, but it was kind of like the number two, and I liked it because it had really interesting skins Mm -hmm. like the music could like interact with the skin itself i don't know like you know downloading mp3s it was illegal and fun (laughs) (laughs) but there was a big forum 
of people who talked and I, I got to know a lot of these people on there for some reason or another and like what a few of them used Linux. So I heard of Linux by this, you know, little community of people that appealed to me. And so when I was trying to figure out what to do with myself, I was like, I should install Linux. So I, where did I get, because you had to get a CD back then, basically. Because <laughs> downloading, think, like, uh, Yeah, you could download it, it would take forever. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, downloading half a gigabyte, it's like 600 meg-ish, would be a couple of days yeah. at that point. <laughs> right. So yeah. you would, there would, the, you know, like, I don't know if Ubuntu existed at this point, but equivalents of Ubuntu would allow you to, uh, for very cheap, mail off uh, for a for a CD, and they'd mail you back. Oh, I didn't know that. I remember using this program called FXP, which was uh, which would basically allow you to resume FTP, uh, which I think you could do anyways. I don't really know what that program even added any value it added, but but I remember I would turn that on, and then sure enough, like uh, my parents would pick up the phone and 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 kill the internet, you know, ruin it, and I'd have to resume. <laughs> or or yes, I think eventually to. we also got cable and uh, or, or DSL or whatever it was, and yeah, it went from taking you know three days to to one day, and you'd sit there and wait. <laughs> yeah, indeed, like. Uh... There's, there was a lot of tools that existed because of the limitations on what you could do back then. Like the first open source app I made was a file usage explorer because I had a three gigabyte hard disk. And so it was very important to me that I didn't have to delete any more music than I wanted to and that I could use my computer and figure out where all the disk storage was going and who was being a bad actor. And of course, like nowadays, no one cares. Those tools don't exist. And just like your FTP program for resuming FTP, like it probably still exists, but I doubt that many people use it or maintain it because if a download fails nowadays, then you just try again, and like two minutes later, you've got the whole thing, even if it's huge, or you're using a more sophisticated protocol, like, for instance, BitTorrent which is uh, really the way that these things should be transferred nowadays. But yeah, so I, I sent off for the CD, and that's how I got into it. And then, you know, it was addicting, like, learning how an operating system works. Like, until then, I'd only used Windows, and I didn't have to know that much about how it works because Microsoft spent a lot of time making sure it works. Linux doesn't usually work even nowadays, let's face it. <laughs> you have to be a bit more passionate, but... It's there for you if you want to become passionate and learn how these things worked. Well, I'm glad that you know I went that route. Honestly, it taught me a lot about how operating systems worked, and I, in many ways, it, it developed my passion for package managers because it's just such a key part of Linux. Yeah, I remember um, um, you know, getting. I think Mandrake was the was the first one that I looked into. And just the package manager blew my mind. Like, I mean, I, there was, I don't know, thousands and thousands of packages even back then. And I just remember being like, just completely amazed, like just shocked at what I could do. It's like, oh, here's a package that does fluid simulation. I don't know what that is, but it sounds freaking cool. Like I like, I like the ocean and if I can make yeah. the ocean on the computer, it looks awesome. Um, and so, you know, then you know, go to the website and you see like, uh, the wave propagation and all these things, visualizations of it. I get you excited about that. And then you're just going down the list, like here's graph libraries, here's all these things. Here's like a free version of paint, like a free version of Photoshop. That's like almost as good as Photoshop. 
like it was just mind blowing and and that's something that you know as we get um kind of older and and more f- like familiar with these things we kind of take it for granted but like all of us went through that phase where we just kind of randomly scrolled through the package manager and saw just unbelievable amounts of human productivity and, and human effort. Yeah, like I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but you're completely right. I forget like how amazing it was that first time. And I, I think I installed Mandrake at one point. I, I remember like a TUI, they call them now, the, the terminal user interfaces. Well, actually, it's not terminal. It stands for something else. I forget text perhaps ah. uh, unexpected um and uh yeah the, the browsing like this large collection like in fact you know it's influenced like a tea we consider what we're building to be a kind of app store for example and like these package managers in many ways were like the original app stores the original way to like find yeah. and install like huge amounts of free open source software and it really was quite amazing seeing all the all the things that people were doing like that was inspiring for me for sure. Uh, because, you know, I'm the kind of person that whenever I use something, I, I find something that I don't like about it. And then if I don't like yep. it for long enough, I want to do something about it. And my co-founder says, that if you want Max to do something, just make sure he's frustrated with it. And it's basically, <laughs> basically true. So, you know, I, I loved them, but also hated them. Um, you know, some of the so older what ones. So what did you hate about them? <laughs> Like, I remember trying out Debian and wanting to install some package that wasn't in their package registry. So mm-hmm. people would provide, like, a deb you could download, a .db. Right. And, like, the first time, I just remember the huge amounts of frustration because it just wouldn't work. It would not install the thing uh, because I didn't have a number of other dependencies I needed. And then when I tried to install those dependencies it would uninstall some of the other things I had. And then I couldn't install the new thing anyway because it depended on two things that were in conflict with each other, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, these things are a lot better nowadays, but back then it was a lot more common. Because I don't think people appreciated just how vastly huge the open source ecosystem was and was becoming and how much complexity there is in how all these packages depend on each other. Um, it's one of the more complicated graphs that humanity's probably invented, honestly, all the myriad of different yep. things you need in order to start running Node in order to work on your React project. I mean, Python still has this problem where if you pip install, or you, there's a command where you can add something to your requirements.txt file in Python. And I think by default, it adds the explicit version. So it's like, okay, if you want to use my software, you have to be running, you know, 13.7.3.1 of software XYZ. And then that means that you can't run my software with anything else because that other thing will now require something that's a little bit off. And so that, that problem hasn't gone away. I think Node does a good job with the uh, with the caret equals where they're willing to tolerate minor revisions, but Python still yeah. has a problem. That's, that's the way it should be, and that's how we're building T. Uh, incidentally, mm-hmm. like uh, carrots in general. Uh, but Node has the advantage as well that JavaScript doesn't mind if you have two versions of a library loaded. Uh, it, it just shadows them. I'm not sure oh, I didn't if Python that. has that. Yeah, which means it's part of the reason that JavaScript programs can end up with 2,000 dependencies, right? Like, because some of them are actually like three or four versions of the same library because it's been over or whatever. Oh, yeah, my mind yeah. is just blown. 
Yeah, so it's not really how it should work. But on the other hand, like it, it depends on your goals. Like for me, the, as I was saying, like these packaging graphs can become so vast and complicated. Like developers want to get on with work and ship software. So that really should take priority. So the node way is kind of like, you know, node is so huge now, easily the mm-hmm. most successful tool for programmers of all time. So they made some good choices or NPM did at least in that right. respect. It's just it, the programmers in us are like, this is horribly inefficient and disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can't believe, although it makes sense because, you know, I always wondered because you know, because whether someone makes a minor or a major revision is completely arbitrary. It's up to the developer to decide this is a minor revision or not. So I always wondered how um, when I built uh, you know websites with Node that it more or less just worked. And I think you just kind of clarified that for me that you know it's running ten different versions of Bootstrap <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, they bypass dependency hell, and everything you know like a lot of popular languages are still loosely typed but like javascript is like the ultimate loosely typed thing as far as i concerned so you might end up with like four versions of this library running and they're all passing around their own versions of these data structures but because like the code that uses it only checks for the stuff it cares about it generally just works until it doesn't suddenly and spectacularly but yeah you know people can't see this because it's a it's it's an audio show you can't see this but patrick is kind of like uh when that gentleman sees the trash uh on the floor and the single tear rolls down his cheek that's what patrick's <laughs> looking like right now <laughs> I, I don't think any of this would work in embedded <laughs> no, he's shaking. patrick's shaking no, his head. <laughs> no. well, I've, I've gone through lots of different languages like i started with c plus plus because um the stuff I was doing in open source and Linux was using Qt. It's called Qt. It's oh, right, a yeah. cross-platform toolkit. And Qt made C++ a lot more bearable. But yeah, I've certainly learned that too strong a typing system just gets in the way of getting work done. But not enough of a typing system at all means that all you're doing is saying that, well, this software is not going to work and I don't know how. <laughs> In a couple yep, of weeks, yep. in a month, there's going to be some bug. One of my users is going to suffer for this. And uh, I'm just okay with that. So nowadays, I quite <laughs> like TypeScript, actually, because I feel it's like this yeah. nice compromise between the loosey-goosey world of JavaScript and something which has a strong enough type system that when you when you compile it, you feel that it's done a lot of checking for you. Probably everything's... So we're building a lot of tea with TypeScript using Dino. Oh, what is Dino? I've never heard of that. Uh, Dino, it was made by the same guy who made Node, and it's basically the successor in his mind. Uh, it's an you know an anagram or acronym or whatever it is of Node. Okay, so I thought that was oh, clever. interesting. Oh, you know, I've actually I remember reading an article about it, but I can't recall the. Uh... Oh, there was some kind of technical motivations. I think maybe around threading. Maybe I'm sure you would know, like why the person forked uh, Node. Actually, I don't. But I'd be very interested to watch talk about it. So I must make that happen because I wasn't that into JavaScript until about three years ago. So I didn't really care. Apart from like I made the brute formula for Node and NPM back in the day and things like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, there was there's certainly limitations with Node. You can you can tell, and so they threw away a lot of the baggage with Dino in order to make it so like a fresh start in many ways. And it has has a really nice security system. 
where the programs you write with it, you have to say, you have to sort of opt in explicitly to aspects of the sandbox. So it allows you to have internet, but only if you compile it so it has internet and file system access, etc. So you get some security guarantees that are very nice for what we're doing with T. Uh, one of the main reasons that we picked it, though, is because you can compile your TypeScript into a single binary with no dependencies. So T is a single binary you can download with no other dependencies. Like I did this with Brew, right? Uh, Brew, you could clone the repository, and it worked in the clone. Uh, it was a working Brew system. In the end, we made an installer because people wanted that. But I'm a believer that with something as fundamental as this kind of developer tooling, uh, every developer has a different preference on how they want it to work. And early adopters especially are the ones you want because they're the ones who then evangelize your product. And they want it exactly how they want it. So you've got to mm. give them as many choices as you can. Uh, so T is a single binary. You compile it for Windows, Linux, and Mac. Uh, we have an installer, but you don't have to use it. It's up to you. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was thinking about um, with Eternal Terminal, um, we're still not in the Debian uh, you know, main uh, manager, we're in all the other ones. And the reason is because back in Eternal Terminal 2, we're up to f- 7 now, I think. I don't actually work that much on it anymore myself, but I think it's up to version 7. But in version 2, we didn't support Fish, which is this, is similar to Bash, or it's a, it's a shell. And, yeah, and we didn't support my, it. My developer uses it. Ah, okay, cool. So, so, so yeah, there's people who are really passionate about it. And uh, I can't remember exactly what happened. I think I basically just didn't implement it. I, I don't think I closed the issue. Honestly, I can't remember. Maybe I did. But some fish developer got so upset, and they were also one of the Debian maintainers. And for that reason, you know, half a decade later, we're still not in Debian. So, so I think uh, it was really a lesson that you know the people who are kind of the early adopters, as you said, they're also the people who are the most passionate about. Um, and I think that's true for language inventors as well. You know, to sit down and say, you know, Python and C++ uh, and all these languages, they're not cutting it for me. I'm going to go and invent Rust and spend, you know, 10,000 hours evangelizing it. You know, that takes a certain, you know, mindset. And uh, it's really good early on to appeal to those people with that mindset, which could be really difficult. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very good point. And uh, it's something... That I think a lot of more open source projects, like when people ask me, how do you make a successful open source project? Appealing to those early adopters is one of the things they say. And having a great readme is another thing mm-hmm. that I spend a lot of time talking about. Like the T readme, I've probably spent 10% of my time just crafting that. We're not out yet, but we're going to be out soon. And then I know that when it hits Hacker News or Twitter or you know, Slashdot, if people actually still go to Slashdot. I used to read a lot of Slashdot. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing anymore. Day. Actually, now I'm curious. I think it still exists. Slashdot still exists, yeah. They'll read a blurb. The blurb on Slashdot will say, two years, brew two, Max Howells made a new thing. And then they'll click on the link and they'll go to the readme. So, you know, having a readme that carefully explains to people why they need it, how they can use it, and how easy it is for them to try it out. Very important. Yeah, that makes sense. So so I used to use Macports, and then I switched to Brew. So does does Macports predate Brew, or yes. is that just my own personal experience? Okay, yeah. So, so kind of walk us through that. So, you know, Macports exists, 
And at some point you say, I'm going to write homebrew. You know, what's that, what happened there? And what, what, what's that journey like? And, and how did you kind of bring, uh, bring everybody over to, to homebrew? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a pretty good story. So I use Mac ports like everybody else on Mac. I was at Last Femme, uh, which is a music startup, still exists, it's not really a startup anymore. Uh, at the time it was. And we, uh, I was working on the client team because I got the job at Last Femme because of open source, my work on open source. I worked on this music player called Amarok for Linux. And uh, it was very popular. Uh, it was a pretty good piece of software for, for Linux anyway. And the people at Last Femme loved it. So they asked me if I needed a job. And at the time, I was living in my parents' house for free, uh, having left, uh, finished my chemistry degree, only just passing it because I was so like disillusioned with it. Uh, and my parents were like ready to kick me out of the house for <laughs> and, and telling me to go get a job. So perfect timing, frankly. I went and got a job uh, because of open source. So I worked on the client apps because that's what i did on linux like we were on a website but we had little apps that you could use to play the music with and scrubble uh, we had six apps uh, windows linux and mac android iphone and blackberry uh, blackberry had an app store for a very brief time it was our least favorite app that we made by far Hor horrible horrible sdks and apis but they rushed it they panicked because of the iphone uh, so in order to build all these apps, we only had a small team. We used Mac because it was the only platform where the developer tools were pretty good and you could emulate Windows and you could emulate Linux so we could build for all platforms. And then we had all this open source that we used and combining all of that and building it and making it work and then trying to ship and deploy. It was just a nightmare, frankly. I feel that we spent probably 30 to 40% of our time just messing around with build tools and developer tools and package managers. So I used to complain about the fact that it was tedious work and it was in the way of us getting what we wanted done. And one day one of my coworkers got fed up with my complaints and challenged me to do something about it. So uh, I went home and started writing the, the code for homebrew, uh, putting together all the ideas I'd had. Yeah, tell folks like uh, what was painful about Mac ports because a lot of folks listening have probably never even heard of Mac ports. You know, especially if you're just getting started, homebrews really kind of taken the mindshare away. So, so you know, what was Mac ports? The Mac ports experience like back then? Yeah, so um, I think the worst part for people back then about Mac ports was that you had to build everything from source. So uh, those. We were talking about Gen 2 just before the, the show. Uh, it was a similar kind of model where uh, you, you build everything all the way up from libc, which is like basically the, the fundamental library that all open source and all software in the world derives, uh, and uh, <laughs> all the way up to whatever you were building. And it, compiling software used to take forever, forever, mm -hmm. because uh, these CPUs really were very underpowered relatively 20 years ago yeah um, especially so, laptops you know they're meant to yeah. be small but we had mac pros at the time oh like nice the old the old ones that were even bigger than the uh the cheese grater ones that we got nowadays <laughs> yeah. uh, so they had like 16 cores they cost like thousands of dollars but we got them because we were trying to build this software all the time and uh it took too, too much time 
even then. So with MapPlus, you had to build everything from source. Now, the original version of Brew, you had to build everything from source. But I took the very sensible attitude that Apple has already compiled a bunch of these libraries for us. So let's reuse them. So if you build something like wget, which is one of the classic uh, ways to download things in the terminal, like people tend to use curl nowadays because it's more portable and, and uh, more commonly installed by default. But I always use wget as my example. With brew, it would take five minutes to install it. With Mac ports, it would take three hours. So, you know. Yeah, what is Apple? You said Apple is already building some things. Can you dive into that? I don't understand yet. So uh, OSX, or MacOS as we call it now, is Unix under the hood, uh, mm-hmm. built on top of FreeBSD originally. I think it's FreeBSD. It's one of the BSDs. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, they didn't bundle a package manager, which, of course, you know, we call Brew the missing package manager for Mac for quite mm-hmm. a while. But they did bundle a lot of open source. Uh, I think people don't realize how much open source that Apple actually do actively support with macOS, but a lot of these fundamental libraries, uh, they're there. And also their libraries that they bundle, uh, the ones they've written that are closed source, contain some things that are very useful to open source packages that they can use. So ah, MacPulse is like, it, MacPulse took this attitude, all right, we're just going to ignore the operating system completely. We're going to handle everything ourselves. And I get that especially get that now. Like, if I'd known how difficult it is to make a package manager, I might have taken their uh, choice, honestly. But I didn't know what I was doing. So I built Brew with a different idea. One of my favorite quotes about building open source software is by the guy who made PHP. PHP, uh, still extremely huge programming language that I doubt anyone who's only learned to program in the last 10 years has ever touched. But he said, the quote is something along the lines of, I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't trying to make a programming language. I just did each part of it as I needed to, step by step. And, uh, you know, I think that's how a lot of really big open source projects have come about in time. Because if they knew what they were doing, they would have known that the things they were attempting were difficult, hard, or maybe even considered impossible by experts. But they didn't know what they were doing, so they just tried it. And then they be, they made something that got some popularity, so they kept having to hack on it because they felt like an obligation to this community that had emerged. And certainly what happened with me and Brew. So packaging is hard, it turns out. And uh, I understand why Mac Ports would say, okay, we're just going to do everything ourselves because then they have control over it. But it meant that installing WGET took three hours from five minutes. And Yeah, uh, I have a similar story about that. I'd never really used Macs until I became a working professional. So I, um, I'd been Linux you know, pretty much the whole time since high school. Um, I got to my first job and I still had some work to do on my PhD. Like I think they needed, uh, my university needed, uh, they, there was some issue with LaTeX. So basically my LaTeX files weren't compiled in the right style and they couldn't print like the dissertations of the year or whatever. They were, they were harassing me about this. So I said, oh, not, not a big deal. Like I'm just going to open my Mac. I'm going to install like whatever LaTeX program I need on this Mac here while I'm at work. I'm just knock this out. And uh, so, yeah, I installed Mac ports. I said, oh, let me install this MacTex and uh, MacTex. <laughs> It literally yeah. took four days. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, port install Mac Tech. Yeah. And I came back, you know, and it's like, okay, I got some coffee. It's still running. 
I did a bunch of work in another tab. It's still running. It took four days. Like my my laptop was burning my legs on the bus home, and it was like still going. <laughs> yeah, it was really quite crazy, honestly. Uh, interesting you talk about latex because we um, we have a white paper like other crypto projects tend to do, and we build it from Markdown into a PDF that looks like you know a white paper should, and we're using mm-hmm. latex. So we we recently have like gone package the entire latex stack and uh yeah it's it's enormous it's, it's incredible how much work that has been put into this stuff uh over the last 30 years because you know that's how old these kinds of things are it's a shame yep. that more people don't use it outside of academia honestly because it is a nice documentation format yeah it takes an, an enormous amount of time to compile but even now even still I think we're into like the 30 to 40 <laughs> minutes mark nowadays, so nice. like four days. <laughs> yeah, I think there was uh, different modes. Uh, I think even in, in Mac ports, you could specify flags, I think. And there was a minimal flag. I don't know if I could have even used it, though. But but yeah, the default just took forever. It's not worth the risk, though, is it? Because it, w- it won't have something you need. And then you'll find that you wasted one day rather than four. Right. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Always build with everything. Um, but yeah, Mac Pulse wasn't bad. It just wasn't great. I think the biggest issues I had with it was it wasn't developer-friendly. And I wanted to build a tool that, as a developer, I could hack. I wanted a package manager that I could hack. And so Brew was built from the beginning to be more hackable than any package manager before. And I'm sure this is part of the reason it was successful, even though nowadays I don't think anyone knows you can hack it. And a lot of the hackable features have been removed by the current maintainers over the years because they made it more difficult to maintain. Right. But yeah, they were cool features and he's going to have all of them. So. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I love how uh, easy it is to add repos. That was one thing I know with Debian, uh, and this gets back to internal terminal, you know, when people want to use ET on Debian, you know, they have to copy this really long string and it, it requires sudo. And so they don't really know what it's going to do to their computer. Uh, I think it just it adds some GPG key or something from the internet, but but uh, um, you know then they have to run update and now it does something different and it's just really complicated. Um, the with brew uh, it's a brew tap right brew tap and then the the place I think it's uh, integrated with GitHub right so brew tap the organization name the repo name and GitHub and you're you're done you're good. Yeah, 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 like. That was certainly one thing I wanted to do with Brew that I felt that none, very few of the other package managers had is make it easy to use and fun and fun to use. Like to get out of your way so you as someone who really doesn't care how the package manager works or what it's for in many ways can just get the software they want installed easily and quickly. And uh, yeah, the taps thing, it was always my plan to make it so that other people could maintain packages outside of what we were maintaining. Uh, I didn't really develop that idea very much because it turned out maintaining Brew by itself was a, a full-time job. So someone else in the end came up with the name Taps and the idea for Taps, but I rejected their idea and did it differently, <laughs> which caused <laughs> the person who did this contribution to quit the project. Oh, no. Um, oh, it happened. Yeah. But I was right, because their idea for Taps, right, it would explore the fork graph of homebrew and search for formula uh, in the fork graph and then install them. So, you know, on GitHub, you fork projects and then you can add stuff. So this was 
really good in many ways as an idea, and I've used this idea for other things in, since then because open source should GitHub as a whole should like focus more on forks. There's some mm-hmm. good work that gets done in forks, and people never find out about them. And it, open source is all about other people starting to work on these projects. But anyway, this is an aside. Uh, but I didn't feel that people would be able to trust the tool if it could just install a formula like randomly found in the fork tree without some ah, kind right. of reputation system. And I felt that this would be bad for Brew and for the user. So instead, I changed it so you had to explicitly add tabs. And then they were like uh, repositories full of uh, categorized formula, effectively. Maybe it would just be someone who is passionate about these few projects, or maybe it's like an organization or an entire uh, open source uh, project that maintains multiple different packages. And with hindsight, that was definitely the right choice because that's how people have used them. Uh, you, you find the tap and you trust the person who's telling you about the tap rather than it being some sort of random thing. Like the, right. the original idea was more open source, but it was risky. Um, so yeah, like, it was always a plan to do something like that. And that's because I wanted it to be more like that. Like Mac ports, I tried to contribute to Mac Pause once, and I couldn't even figure out how. So I wanted to build a tool that you didn't need to figure out how. It could just like automatically bring in other people's contributions as long as they okayed it. So yeah, it was right, always a goal, right. like developer experience, user experience. I'm super passionate about both of those things. Yeah, that makes sense. The uh, uh, We just had some core Ruby developers on the show. And um, what inspired you to use Ruby for the for the formula? Yeah, I'm, I love Ruby. I've only recently realized how much I miss it. Because the only thing I've ever been able to use it for was homebrew. So I picked Ruby for a few reasons. Uh, one, I wanted homebrew to just work on Mac without any messing around. So I wanted, as a result, to pick a scripting language because I wanted people to be able to clone homebrew and then it immediately just works there's no compilation step there's no build system stuff that you have to do because at the time especially it was extremely common that you couldn't use any software without building it first so you were completely dependent on package managers so you would like find out about a new project and then you go to the website and you find that your package manager that you were using didn't support it yet so then you had to decide whether or not you were going to like figure out how to make the thing work, which would take hours, or just like not use the thing at all and wait until it appeared in your packager of choice. Yeah, I still have this problem today. There's a, um, you know, in Wi-Fi, you have the 2.4G and the 5G Wi-Fi, right? In Linux, it's really hard to find a Wi-Fi adapter that's 5G that works in Linux. And, and I found one where I had to, like build a kernel module from the source. The whole thing took me multiple hours. And then, and then it, you know, as soon as I upgraded the OS, it stopped working. So finally, I was like, forget it. Hey, I'm going to get a 2.4G uh, SSID up in the house just because of that. So it's, it's still a problem today. It's such a familiar story. It's why I, why I rage quit Linux, actually, was like the seventh time <laughs> in several months where I yeah. didn't have any working Wi-Fi and I had no other internet. So I was just sitting there trying to figure this out by myself. Uh, and then I was like, Apple just released an Intel Mac. And uh, OS X looks like it's Unix, but prettier and with some user experience considerations. So I bought one and never looked back. 
Uh, yep. I obviously yep. use Linux a lot, like a lot of people do nowadays, but only as a server and not as a desktop. Right. Oh, yeah, same thing. I, I have a hard time. Uh, I tried the Linux laptop thing back in uh, 2018. I was like, oh, by now, it's got to be a better experience. And I was I was back to MacBook in six months. <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't looked into desktop Linux in in years, but I have a friend who recently switched. Well, like a couple of years ago now, he's been doing this a couple of years still from Mac to Linux. It's because mostly he got fed up with Apple, uh, which I get. Like the guy worked for Apple for like years uh, ah. and years ago, so he had like a better understanding, I think, than most people about them and what they're doing but he decided that what was going on with osx and iphone and all that was just like not worth it for him anymore so he switched to linux back back to linux and he's doing all right he doesn't complain at least but you know i think it was politically motivated to a reasonable extent so yeah i think if you're motivated you can you can do anything i couldn't get the thumbprint uh you know the thumbprint login to work and they were like, oh, you know, the company that releases the thumbprint, this is a, a Dell. It's not even like a random brand. And they're like, try building it from source. It didn't compile. It's like, forget it. So the thumbprint never worked. Yeah, God, you, you bring back a lot of memories. But, <laughs> uh, you know, like it was basically these kinds of frustrations that drove me to doing homebrew. It's like, I want all this stuff to get out of the way because like, Oh, at the end of the day, I like making other things and I like playing around with new things. I love new tools and apps and utilities that people build in open source and I want to try them out. I was like, I just want like, the whole bit that's difficult to get out of the way. So, yeah, I built it from the start and throughout with those being guiding philosophies for how it should work. Like the people who did join the project and now maintain it in my absence. Like, I drilled it into them like quite thoroughly and maybe even like unpleasantly that the most important thing was that homebrew was robust that it worked that it got mm -hmm. the user what they wanted and so we spent a lot of time on like error messages and stuff like your experience with compiling your wi-fi driver like the problem was like the error messages didn't help you to figure out what to do about it right yeah like, if they yep. could have been more useful then probably you would have been able to figure it out. And then it would have been a minor frustration rather than a major frustration that made you abandon even trying to do it. And so with Homebrew, the errors were always like attempting to be helpful. And then we built like the doctor command into it. So oh, Brew right. Doctor like tries to diagnose what might be wrong with your system for you and give you helpful tidbits. And then direct you to like stuff on GitHub that might be able to help you. Like we used to make it so that when the build failed, we search GitHub for you and see if we could find where there's someone else had already had the same issue. So maybe you could get some help there. Well, I believe that you know people can fix these problems themselves. It's just we're the experts and we need to give as much automated help as possible because uh, you know we don't have enough time to do it by hand. That makes sense. So when you install Homebrew, I, I'm assuming it installs a Ruby VM and interpreter because I don't think that comes built in on Mac, right? And then oh, no, that, that, was, that was one of the reasons I chose Ruby is that it came with the Mac. And I think it's still Oh, does. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's oh. like an older version now. And so, you know, Brew had to like maintain compatibility with this older version for a long time, probably still does. But yeah, it came with it. So, yeah, I picked Ruby because it came with the Mac. I wanted Brew to be this thing that just easily installed and just worked immediately without any messing around. No installer, no build systems. 
and uh, I wanted to try out Ruby. I'd heard great things about how great Ruby was. Uh, Ruby on Rails was like relatively nascent. This was like 2007, 2000. No, it was 2009, 2009. And, uh, you know, I'd read some tutorials about Ruby and it like looked beautiful. And like, frankly, it is. I, I miss it because, mm-hmm. you know, I've been doing tea. I've been packaging with tea. And so I ended up doing some Ruby again. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> nice. So what is beautiful? What's beautiful about Ruby? It's just so elegant. There's there's a way to do everything in Ruby that I used to spend hours rewriting my code just to make it more pretty because I could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew I always knew there was a prettier way to express it in Ruby. And you know, like the primitives are great. Like it's just today with TypeScript, I was like annoyed there's no zip function, for example. There's just not enough right. functional primitives that come with TypeScript or JavaScript. Like you can get libraries that do these things, but then they don't have enough language built-ins to make it so that it works nicely. So I don't like using the libraries, and I just avoid using zip and things like that as a result. But Ruby's standard library was really nicely designed, and uh, some of the little features, like they'd borrow a few things from Perl, but not too much. So that it was a nightmare, and then mm-hmm. uh, you could, and you know, the, the one-liner type input system from Perl, so you can like write little scripts that will like um, take inputs from the command line and then work on them seamlessly, and then automatically print outputs. So you could write these really tight little scripts, and it just felt so good to to use. Um, but yeah, I couldn't write T in it. Because I need a type system nowadays. I've learned, I learned without a type system, and then I my first set of professional and open source work was C plus plus, which is too typed and too unpleasant in many other ways. And then like everyone yeah. got super passionate about things like Ruby and JavaScript and Python because suddenly you weren't spending all this time with the type system in your way. I think things like TypeScript have got the right balance between allowing you to escape from it and be able to do reasonably good code when you need to uh, without the type system constraining you. But also the type system is really nice and fast. God, it's fast because I used Swift for quite a few years because uh, I was quite an iPhone developer for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So I became super passionate about Swift. And I wrote a bunch of open source tooling for Swift. Uh, but it takes so long to build a Swift program. Right. Similar to Scala. Scala has the same problem. Like as a developer, you need like these fast debug cycles because otherwise you lose what you're doing. Your your brain can only hold on to all that context for so long. Yeah, I mean, I was in uh, some C plus plus templating hellscape uh, about a week ago, and uh, it's interesting. I mean, there's uh, auto now, and so there's type inf- inferencing and all of that, which definitely helps. I mean, you know, you see auto everywhere now, but um, but occasionally you will still end up with some just complete template, you know, nightmare. And you, I think here's what I think the problem is with C++ is that people, you know, be, people will use pound defines and templates because they don't, instead of using correct design patterns. So like, for example, you know, you could do dependency injection and inject a clock into your class. And so now you have a system clock, you have a fake clock, and you can inject any clock you want. Or you could have a template 
which takes like a class clock. And now like the, that entire code base needs to be in the header file. And like everywhere you use that class, you have to do bracket, you know, my clock, except when you're in a test. And now, you know, like, yeah, so, so it's just people use templates in ways that create landmines, I think. Oh, absolutely. I remember many times having similar issues. And uh, I remember those template errors that could be like three or four pages of compiler output. Yeah. And like figuring out what the error was. Or, like Cube was nice in that respect. They understood that like the C++ standard library just went over the top and needed to be discarded. So they did their own. But yeah, like, yep. and uh, I remember having fun with macros. Like I uh, edited a co-worker's header file at one point and put hash error at the top. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as a result, every single thing you tried to do would error. And because of the way the C++ compiler did, or maybe I did a trick of some sort, it didn't say where the error was happening. <laughs> and I let him like try to debug it for like 20 minutes before I walked over and like fixed it for him. But yeah, you could, you could really do like evil things. It's from an era where, you know, developers just believe that other developers needed to be able to like wade in there put on their big boots and figure it out. But, you know, we made the right choices by realizing that that wasn't actually a good use of developers' time. At the end of the day, we're, we're trying to improve the world with software. And if we're wasting time on finding, like, a prank that your coworker put in because it was possible, that's, that's not good. A great April Fool's uh, prank out there, if you're listening to this show uh, and <laughs> want to know a good April Fool's prank, yeah, you if you're in C++, you pound define and replace if with if, you know, rand is greater than 0.999 and the actual <laughs> oh, if statement. And so you're, you've you're created your own man. your own quantum computer. And so now you have you have this beautiful <laughs> quantum computer that you can use and it'll run for about an hour or so. <laughs> yeah, man. It's it's just crazy, isn't it, that the language allowed you to literally do a string replace on keywords and you, you wouldn't know you'd have to dig really deep to find that and like yeah we all found open source projects or other people's code where people were doing this stuff with c++ it, it, it needs to die rust is fabulous in in relation did you hear about rust uh, going into the linux kernel i was very excited about that mm -hmm. that happened oh, yeah. uh, earlier this week yeah we're recording the show in september so uh uh, yeah, it, uh, this just happened, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's, it's so good. Like, it, it needs to happen to all the base level things, and the Linux kernel will only benefit, in my opinion. Well, I'm sure there'll be some teething troubles for a while, but you know, I want to see things like OpenSSL like replaced with like Rust equivalents uh, over the next yep. five to ten years. Like the the entire security and robustness of everything we built. Yeah, it needs it. Yeah, can you imagine when you replace OpenSSL with a Rust version and find, you know, 3,000 exploits? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would that would be a fun thing to read about. So I hope someone's doing it. I think, I think I've read that some people are. Yeah, a lot of OpenSSL code is is pretty gnarly because it's, it's like... Um, it's C that they're compiling with a C++ compiler, you know, but it but it's a bunch of global functions that are taking classes as as objects and everything. So it's going to be a <laughs> brutal. That close. Yeah, it's a brutal uh, port, but someone someone will do it. It's an important enough library. Oh yeah, it's 
foundational. And it's, it's interesting in the respect that he's like 20, 30 years old at this point and like is yeah. full of very well tested but still buggy code. <laughs> it's a testament yeah. to how yeah. bad I think humans are at programming and why we need tooling to support us. Yeah, totally. So what is um like the most kind of a crazy experience you've had with homebrew like what's a what's an incredibly complicated situation you've had to deal with it could be you know arguments over a package or or some really esoteric error or what's something that kind of really kept you up at night when you're doing homebrew <laughs> well i certainly did have sleepless nights at various times because it became important and worrying about whether or not I was taking it in the right direction, uh, it mattered to me. Like people, uh, some people think I'm not like a very nice person, but I genuinely care about these mm-hmm. bits of open source that I put out there and how it, it impacts the world and what the world is going to get out of them. I think that the reason I'm not considered nice in some ways is like that guy who quit the project over the taps thing, right? Like I just stood my ground. I stood my ground. I was like, I don't think it should be this way. We need to do it this other way. And it's it's hard to have, like, especially if you put work into something rejected in that manner. So, you know, I felt like a bad person a lot. But my priority by far was the product, the thing that we were building, and how that impacted open source and how that impacted the entire software ecosystem, all developers of any kind. So, you know, that that's stuff like that. I remember, like, stories like, you know, when we put Node in, we bundled NPN with it, and then Isaac didn't want that, so he came up and we argued for like several days about whether or not it was Homebrew's job to bundle NPM with Node or not. And in <laughs> the end, we agreed. We agreed with them. You know, that was something that we tried to do with Brew as well. It's like we weren't, we didn't consider us to be the most important part of the ecosystem. We were just like the middleware between the people who knew what their open source should do because they're building it and the users who wanted to do something with it. Like I think a lot of these packages, they take the attitude that they're building the system and what matters most is them. And uh, yeah, I don't agree with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think everything you build has has an audience and you need to kind of understand and iterate. There was some issue um, with Eternal Terminal early on where we have uh, auto opt-in. Yeah, there is a there is an error, or not an error message, but there's a little message and delay the first time. We have an auto opt-in to Sentry so we can collect crashes. And um, that was a really difficult kind of decision to make because you know, I do really respect people's privacy. You know, and we're very careful not to log someone's IP address or anything like that. But even still, like, you know, you know, logging, you know, a, a crash stack, something that makes some people nervous. It was a difficult decision. But then on the flip side, like I'm constantly getting issues like, hey, here's a crash. And like, there's no way to repro. and We don't have all the artifacts. It's just gone. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, you're caught in this space. You can't make everybody, everyone happy. So you're always kind of a mean person to somebody. Uh, but as long as you're a nice person to somebody else, at the same time, it works out. Uh, you know, I, I got some stories about crash reporting. And uh, with Amarok, the music player, uh, it was very crashy because all of us were relatively junior developers, frankly, mm-hmm. at the time. So I built in a thing where if it crashed, it opened up your email client with crashes at amarok.org with the backtrace in it. 
And I felt this was a nice compromise there. Like, they choose whether or not they're going to send it. And we've made it very simple for them because we grabbed the backtrace and stuck it in an email. And they understand how email works. There's no magic going on that they don't understand potentially mm-hmm. reporting things that they can't see. And that worked really well to the extent that we couldn't keep up <laughs> with all the oh, crashes. Yeah. And then with Brew, when it crashed, I just dumped as much information as I could that I would need to de- debug it in the terminal and then gave them the link to opening a new ticket. I was like, if you want, report this bug, I'll fix it. Uh, here, just copy and paste everything above <laughs> into the yeah, ticket. Yeah, makes sense. So, and that was pretty effective. But part of the reason it was effective is that I was very quick to fix the bugs as well. Like with open source, a lot of the time you report a bug and you never hear back. If you look at your, if you've ever reported like any tickets to other projects, if you look at your GitHub history, you'll find tickets you've opened years ago that never even got a response. Like open source has a bad rep where, you know, like in general, like we do it for free. So, you know, most people don't really have the time to provide good support. With Homebrew, I quit my job to work on it full time so that I could give it that kind of support. Wow, let's let's dive into that. And then that'll be a good segue into T. So so yeah, kind of walk us through that. I mean, you quit your job. So was there a ramp where you were already getting donations to a degree where you could quit? Did you kind of like just take a leap of faith? Like how did how did that work? Yeah, I've never received a single donation. No, that's not true. I've received some donations, but only after I'd left the project. <laughs> oh, okay, so, so you, how did you work full-time on it then? I saved some money up. Um, you can ah, live nice. fairly frugally in Britain if you want to, and I wanted to. So yeah. I saved some money up and then started working on it full-time. Like, it had become apparent that it was a success, and it was by far the most interesting thing I could think of to work on. And I wanted to make sure it was a big success. So yeah, I quit and I survived about six months on what I had. I remember going to the bank and asking them what happens when you go overdraft because I was about to go overdraft the next day. And they looked at me and I was like, you know, an idiot because I was 28 and I didn't understand how banks work. They told me it'd be fine. But, you know, I had to get another job. So I got another job at that point, worked for TweetDeck, um, made their mobile apps. But it, it began like this cycle for me where I would get jobs that I, you know, I wanted to do most of them. Like, I don't like working on things I don't like, but, you know, my, my story is that I couldn't imagine working in chemistry for the rest of my life. It made me extremely depressed. So if I don't like the work, then I get depressed. Uh, so I have to like it to a certain extent. But what I've wanted to do for the last 15 years pretty much is work on open source. I find that it's just the place that I bring the most value to the world and I get the most satisfaction. I love working with these big communities and building tools that everybody needs, whatever kind of thing they're working on. It's just incredibly rewarding. And so I I cycled for years between full-time work and working on Homebrew and my other open source projects. I've got quite a lot, none of them as big or as famous as Homebrew, of course, Uh, until I burned out, essentially. It's been years I've been doing two jobs, essentially, Mm -hmm. all the time, and never really having enough time for the open source work. And so I felt Homebrew was good enough at that point, and so I left the project. Like People had turned up that were excellent. You you really can get the best people in the world 
for open source because they turn up and they have to really want to do it. You're not paying them. They love it. And uh, so, right, right. you know. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, I think you're you're right that it's a, it's a permanent mark on civilization, right? Like you could get a paycheck, but that paycheck, you know, I have, I joke that I have direct deposit and direct withdrawal, right? So the money comes in, the money goes out. I don't really see any of it. Um, but when you build an open source project, I mean, even homebrew, you know, let's say you, you project this way, way out into the future, you know, century, decades or centuries, way out of the future, and no one's using any of these things anymore. You know, those ideas will make their way into the derived projects. And, you know, the next person who builds a package manager is going to have a GitHub integration that's really lightweight like that. Right. And so in this way, th- those are the marks that are that are permanent. Yeah. Well, brew. Well, there's so many different brews now. Like the one I found the other day is called Pearl Brew. Uh, it did have a lot of influence, the mm-hmm. ideas that it propagated. And all the ideas I had for brew were based on other package managers I'd used. There were certainly some innovations in there where I put two of these ideas I had because of using other people's tooling together and made something that was better and newer. But yeah, we, we're all building on the shoulders of giants in open source. And it's part of the reason it's so great. And that's why we, we hate the idea of software patents, right? Like all open source right, people right. Ha- hate that because the very idea that you couldn't take some good idea someone else has had and use it to make something better or newer or different is very offensive. But, you know, that's the world. Yeah, you know, that was a big deal like uh, around 10 years ago. And then I haven't heard very much about patents or patent trolling in a while. So I don't really know what happened there. It'd be fascinating to uh, dive into that. We should do a whole a whole show on just patents and what really happened there. It seems like we're in a some type of healthy situation now. I don't know if it's uh, um, like a hostage situation or what's going on, but it seems like the patent trolls have died down lately, at least. Yeah, I think you're right. And I hadn't really noticed that. So that is, is a huge relief. There was certainly a period where it was starting to look like these software patterns and the trolls that own them were going to seriously disrupt and damage software and the internet. Yeah. So something happened. Yeah, totally. Maybe it was the Free Software Foundation. Maybe they, they pulled it off what they were trying to do. Yeah, I think, I mean, the last I'd heard about it was, you know, these big companies, these fang companies were all um, um, stocking up on these patents. And so I think it created almost like this uh, mutually assured destruction type scenario. And maybe that got everybody to calm down. Yeah. 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 So, so okay, let's jump into T. So T is, you've said so far, T is a, is a package manager. So kind of tell us about like, uh, what got you inspired to do tea? Was it straight from homebrew to tea or was there anything in the middle? And, and kind of what, you know, lead us into like what tea is, is all about and what you're trying to do there. Yeah. So, well, I, I stopped working on homebrew in like 2015, 2016, and I'd been like winding down for about a year or so before that, really. Uh, I'd become very interested in iPhone apps, which I stopped being interested in a few years ago. So, in between, I did a lot of iPhone work and made a lot of open source for the iPhone ecosystem as a result. But I never thought I would do another brew. My people have asked me, you know, all the time since, like, are you ever going to do another one? And I 
I certainly been keeping notes over the years about what I would do if I made something like a brew two. Like, I'm an obsessive note taker in many ways, and I had pages and pages of it, which I've put into tea. Um, but I didn't think I would. Like, I don't typically go back and do sequels, you know. it's I like new projects and new ideas, but it's been long enough. And, well, uh, I have a son now. And, uh, about oh, congrats. Just, thank you. It's four months. He's quite a little rascal. <laughs> nice. uh, about a year ago, like, uh, me and my girlfriend were trying to get pregnant. And at the time, I was working on uh, open source and some other little projects. I was trying to make some, like micro SASs and stuff like that. I, I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to be able to work on open source when I wanted to be able to work on open source. So we got pregnant a lot quicker than expected. So uh, it, it, the, the gyno, gynecologist suggested it would take a year, but it took uh, about two weeks. And uh, <laughs> suddenly I found that I all my plans were in a bit of disarray. So I was like, okay, I've either got to go back into industry, you know, get a normal job so I can like provide for a family, or I got to figure something out. So I pulled over all my old ideas and came across Brew 2, uh, the ideas I'd written down there. And I had a friend who's been trying to get me into crypto and Web3 for years. Like he got into it like, you know, very early. But I never found it very interesting uh, because it seemed like it was just about money, you know. Right, right. And I thought, you know, I thought Bitcoin was very interesting and innovative and quite astonishing in some ways. Like that white paper's worth reading. Um, but it still just seemed like money. But he'd been trying to get me into that. And I was like, okay, well, maybe there's something there. So I was also reading up on Web3 and seeing what it was. So whoever called it Web3, that was a great idea, incidentally. Like whether or not it will... Uh, earn the title is yet to be seen but it made it sound different and interesting and so that got me into it and it was while i was late night exploring my backlog of ideas and playing around with open sea and nfts and digital contracts that i suddenly realized that there was a possibility there to combine brew with web3 and in effect provide a mechanism for funding open source so people like myself could live off open source rather than either turn it into a passion project where you're begging for donations or seeking bounties or make it useful to Microsoft so they'll hire you. You can keep your project for yourself, make some money with it. So essentially, I, I, I then found out my friend and he thought it was a genius idea and we managed to get, at this point, we're $18 million of funding. I started active development on it in April, and we genuinely believe we can change how open source is funded. So let's walk. Let's let's walk through that. So um, you have a friend who's who's really into crypto, and um, you know the two of you kind of click with this idea, which I think is a, a phenomenal idea. Basically, you have this new kind of uh, uh, let's say more liquid, more electronic way of transferring uh, money. You have a marketplace where you have um, one thing, just segue, one thing you'll know now that you have a kid, it's going to take a few years. When your kid starts preschool, you'll be sick pretty much all of September. But you have this marketplace where on one side you have uh, you know, people who are using open source software and are getting value from it. And on the other side, you have the people producing it. 
And so it seems like you can create you know, a very efficient market there. How did that turn into a funded company? So like, who did you speak to? Like, what's that chain of events like? Because you know, a lot of people um, know absolutely nothing about, even people who have been in the industry, I even put myself in this position, you know, know nothing about startups. Uh, we've heard the word seed round. We don't know really what it means. And so c- kind of walk us through what that, what that journey was like till now. It's a good question, and it is is fun stories, really. Um, so, well, I'm very fortunate because when you have something that's as well known as homebrew, it, it makes things a lot simpler. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we estimate that homebrew has 40 million users, and it's probably true because they're not all developers; they're also all these other professions that need the tooling that comes with homebrew. Right. IT initially is going to be very focused on developers, but know, over time, it can evolve. I built T to be the ultimate packaging tool, but we can talk about its feature set in a minute. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like, uh, so my friend has known me for years and he's wanted to work with me on uh, something this big before. We've worked on minor startups and done contracting together and things. Uh, Timothy Lewis. Uh, so he, uh, because he's been in crypto so long, just knew a lot of people that uh, were willing to invest in the sector. And I remember the first meeting we had with one of our first investors, I was talking it through and he was fascinated by my story. Like I said, how, you know, the only things I'd ever got from Homebrew were Google once sent me a blanket and things like this. <laughs> like great, great pitch stories, because it's true. They sent me a blanket and they said, thanks for Homebrew. Wow. How <laughs> uh, did they know they your like, address? Oh, it's Google, right? I mean, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they didn't ask me for my address. Okay. Like they have, you know, they've had, they've had like give back to open source programs for years. And this is one of the first. And all it was that year was a blanket. Like now they actually throw money at it. But yeah, at the time. I got a, uh, similarly, I, I got a uh, Google Home. It's actually in the in the kids' playroom right behind me through this, behind this wall. Um, yeah, I don't remember exactly how it worked. But yeah, I remember giving them my address and then being a little skeptical. But yeah, a random Google Home just showed up at my house a week later. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, that, that's, that's nice. But still, certainly um, not enough. To, uh, to pay the bills if you're going to do open source full-time. Right. But, uh, but, yeah. um, so I was pitching, and then uh, this guy was like, okay, I'm going to just invite my, my friend down to talk to you. And the guy was like a developer. And so the guy turns up, and my co-founder goes, so, so do you know Homebrew? And he was like, what, the package manager for Mac? And he's like, yeah. And he said, do you use it? And he's like, oh, God, we use it all the time. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, like the first key moment in us, like starting to build this raise, and I'd had like this enormous piece of validation from just like some guy who'd been invited to like bet me, essentially. So it does definitely help if you have something as big as homebrew behind you. That is really cool. I'll, I actually one one really quick homebrew story, and then I want to get back to tea. But I um I actually think. Maybe not solely, maybe solely responsible for keeping homebrew alive at at Facebook, which is now Meta. Um, there was a whole uh, um, enterprise engineering team that wanted to kill uh, homebrew, and they actually we were in this arms race where you know homebrew installs things to user local, so they were locking down user local to where you uh, uh, when you ran brew commands, it would fail in really odd ways. And then somebody, I think it was a colleague of mine, maybe I did, we submitted something to Homebrewer when it couldn't read user local, it told you that, like right off the bat, so that that way, so then people started writing scripts where it was like chmod user local, then run Homebrew, and then an hour later, 
you know, puppet would kick in and like change it back and you'd be in this arms race. And, uh, um, and, and the alternative to all of the points you mentioned earlier, the alternative was not developer friendly. It was painful. And, um, it was basically like the, it was a internal version of the app store. So you would go to like the equivalent of like the Apple app store and you would search for like, you know, lib open SSL. And then you'd have to click the button to install it. And it's like just ridiculous. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's this big uh, battle back and forth. We finally won. And so I think there's still a ton of people uh, using using Homebrew. It's just a testament to how good the experience is. That's a great story. I love it. I haven't really heard one like it before because, you know, I know that these big companies use it uh, probably still. Because I, obviously my famous failed Google interview, I was like, you will use it and you won't hire me. Um, wait, wait, hang on. I don't, you have to, you have to, you have to explain that one. <laughs> what happened? Okay. Uh, so it was like 2015 and uh, I was looking for new work. So my wife at the time said, uh, why don't you reply to Google's emails for a change? Like, because they've been trying to recruit me, you know, since Homebrew got big. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't really want to work for somewhere like Google, but I thought, why not? I'll just do the interview. So the recruiter phones me and said, well, we're skipping over the phone interview because of your, uh, you know, prestige. And I was like, well, okay, but you know, right. I don't have a computer science degree, right? Because obviously I knew that Google interviews were always like very computer science-y. And the recruiter said, oh, yeah, we know. That's fine. We'll have like custom interviews for you. I was like, well, okay, excellent. And then like the first interview when I got there was asking me to invert a binary tree which obviously I didn't know how to do. So uh, it wasn't a good day. I had some interviews that were better than others, but you know, I figured I didn't get it. And then a week later, they phoned me to say that I didn't get it. And then I immediately went to Twitter and typed, 90% um, of our engineers use the software you wrote, homebrew in brackets, but you can't invert a binary tree on a blackboard, <laughs> so F off. <laughs> and at the time, I had like 600 followers. So I didn't think it would matter. <laughs> by the end of the next week i had fifteen thousand followers oh my god that's amazing this tweet had been on hacker news like eight times like supposedly it, it caused google to like look at their interview process and make changes i have friends who were at google at the time and they said there was a big fuss big stink made uh but it also led to me getting like 200 job offers from other companies uh, <laughs> that's awesome it was it was a pretty remarkable week. I felt bad because, like as I say, I had very few followers. I didn't think it would be like a viral tweet. But at this point, it's had like 4 million views or something. It still gets replies as though it happened yesterday. 2015, people, seven years ago. What you should do is you should you should sort the offers based off like your own personal priority and then, you know, put them into a binary tree and invert it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... After that, I did go home and figure out how to do it because Jonathan Blow, you know Jonathan Blow? Oh, yeah, the developer made, of Braid, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, he, I, I've always admired the guy and then suddenly he's in my Twitter thread telling me that I'm a bad developer because I can't do this. Like, it <laughs> hurt my feelings. Honestly, the guy was a bit of a hero of mine. And like, he's there, like, I watched his documentary and I loved his games. And he's like, you're probably not a good developer, actually, Max. You should probably go and learn how to do that. No. So I did. I went and learned it. Thanks, Jonathan. 
Well, it's good that you took it on the chin. And you know, some people would have been crushed by a lot of the things you talked about. I mean, having to change disciplines, you know, getting your your hero kind of taking a sucker punch at you. But, but you, you kind of took all of these opportunities to step forward, you know. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I guess it's always been the kind of person I am. Always trying to move forwards with things. So, yeah, I took the job at Apple. Apple offered me work, and I lasted a year. Uh, it, I was right. I don't work well at big companies. Too much process. I, I also found this out. I mean, I, I, I worked for big companies for, I don't know, 15 years or something. But but now that I'm at a smaller company, it's so much better. It just fits my personality so much better. Okay, so you, you, you know, based off, you know, someone who's made you know, one of the most popular package managers, you know, you secured some funding. And so you have, uh, you said 13 people right now? I think it's more. Just oh, someone nice. else start and people keep dying. I'm uh, a little hands off with that side of things at the moment, even though I'm the CEO, because I'm actively building the product. You know, I'm, I'm the key developer at this point. Um, we're hiring more so I can stop being the key developer. But, you know, the truth is I know the thing we're building like very thoroughly. I've been thinking about it for years. So I'm finishing that off. We're hoping to launch it soonish this year. Essentially it's 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 like a package manager but overpowered. And is this um like OS agnostic? Like what, what kind of packages yeah. are you managing? So at this point it's the same sort of stuff that Brew manages and packages like Debian's apt and Yum and all the all the Linux ones. So that that base part of the stack, but because part of our product offering is going to be this blockchain component, that that's where we're storing the package data. Mm-hmm. And we're not storing it, you're storing it. As open source maintainers, you will publish using a private key uh, into our chain, essentially an NFT that represents uh, releases for your open source and dependency information. So we're building essentially an agnostic package registry. For once and for all, I want there to be one source of data for all open source packages. It's, It's awfully duplicated. Uh, even with Brew, I made it worse by doing yet another one. Although, you know, I get why. But like, mm-hmm. this time, essentially, we're making the database. But because this um, this graph understands like the entire open source ecosystem and how it depends on each other, when you put some token into that graph, it can distribute it automatically using digital contracts to the rest of the graph. So if, you, uh, if React, for example, is given some token, then all of React's dependencies the node portion and the portion under node that is like uh, the part that we're starting with that he's going to package uh, can be given a percentage decreasing all the way down to libc essentially this is the, like the, the golden sort of principle of it of why it's going to work we're not changing how open source works as well like you know you're not going to have to like pay to use t and t is just going to be one client of this blockchain component so we're using like the steeping system effectively. So we're doing like what banks do with interest effectively. Like you invest some money with the bank and the bank gives you an interest payment as a, as a reward. A blockchain will, uh, using proof of stake, give these rewards to the open source ecosystem. So you'll get a little bit of that reward as thanks for securing this network. So we're expecting developers and companies, especially companies, like I think like these fan companies that don't want to use homebrew but are forced to like facebook uh should be you know basically investing tens of millions of dollars a year 
into the open source that they use. And because we're using blockchain and because we are building a set of tooling around that to assist that, essentially we're automating the, the part of the process for these companies or individuals or projects or groups on figuring out what open source they use and allowing them to put money into that system. Well, right now, you know, Google have to email you and say, hey, we want to send you a Google Home. Like, how do we do it? And then, you know, there's a limit. There's a limit to how many projects they can support in that manner because it's so manual. Effectively, we're automating that. So I'm incredibly excited about what we're doing on the blockchain side. Also, I came into this knowing that there's no way our blockchain component would get much usage unless there was a kick-ass set of tools that go with it that encourage that adoption and that usage. So T is also like a successor to Brew in many ways, a, a, a general tool for developers that incorporates a lot of ideas I've had over the years. Because I feel like the package manager can be so much more than just a package manager. Like it controls and allows you power over every tool in your development stack. There's just so much more that can be done than just installing updates and managing a, a set a set set of packages that you use. So when we launch, it's going to have a few cool features. Like essentially, we've made the package manager into a virtual environment manager for everything. You install like a set set of packages at set versions that are defined, and you can carrot update them just like we were talking about with Node. So you say I version I depend on version 2.2 plus up to version three of this tool. And then, uh, you know, you can have the independent projects that you're working on that use completely independent sets of tooling. Even things like Postgres, like we can instantiate versions of Postgres, multiple versions on your system at once. And they're all using like isolated containerized things. Effectively, I'm making it so you don't want to use Docker for development. Yeah, it sounds uh, similar think... to Snap. You know, Snap on, on Linux yeah. is, is, has, has some of these ideas in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is stuff that can do this, like Nix. It's like right, a big right. one where it, it like makes effectively environments to work in. But I'm coming at it from the perspective of the developer and not a system engineer or a DevOps person. Right, right. This is a developer tool where I'm making it extremely pleasant for developers to use. Yeah, you probably want to. This sounds awesome. So as far as, uh, you know, we have a lot of folks who are, they're just graduating or they're um, you know looking for internships. You know, what's the state of, of hiring right now um, at T? Are you looking for either of those, both of them? Oh, yeah, actively. I need another five or six developers before the end of the year. And then, like, almost certainly we just keep scaling up. Internships are a little trickier because, like, a lot of the work we're doing is packaging. And the truth is they don't teach you that at school. <laughs> they don't really teach it anywhere. We're having trouble hiring as a result. We're looking at all the existing package managers, essentially. But right now, I really need a Windows packager because we are a cross-platform tool. I believe as a developer, especially nowadays, you should be able to work on whatever platform you want. And if you're part of a team, that team should not like say, okay, you have to use a Mac because that's all we really support. It should be, um, okay, you just use T. And T will make sure that the system that you're building with is the same for all of us, even though the platform underneath is different. Uh, so we're supporting Linux and Mac very well at the moment, and Windows so-so. We need a Windows packager. But I'm generally hiring full stack. Uh, I want some React devs. I want JavaScript devs. Like a big part of what we're doing is we think that something like T is really an app store. And so we're going to have an app. 
Uh, like, you know, package managers have had apps before, but ours will be much nicer. And uh, also uh, integrated heavily into the web. So, you know, I want one-click installs from the web, essentially. Install uh, Node straight from the web, one-click. Yeah, I felt like that, uh, that's one thing that Linux got really nicely is you can you can download a dev file and it like opens a deep link in the software manager and it's, you just click install and you're you're done. Yeah, some of these conveniences, we're just bringing them all together essentially. And there's a suite of other like surprise features that I think are just going to open up entirely new ways of, I know it sounds pretentious, but like effectively I'm just trying to like break down barriers for developers. I want developers to spend all their time making awesome stuff and none of their time, zero, uh, worrying about how to install things and how to get started with things or experimenting with new tools. Well, the amount of new stuff that comes out every week, I want you to be able to feel that you can try out like at least half of it because there's a very simple way by the T website to like boot up effectively a sandbox and try out like a suggestion on like how to use that thing uh, effectively a playground for those mm-hmm. tools yeah super cool yeah i do feel like the the economic uh model is is, is also something i really appreciate i have a for eternal terminal i have a github donations button which i put very little effort into promoting or anything like that uh, and I think there is one donor. So if you're listening to the show, thank you so much, whoever you are. But 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 I mean, this is also part of the problem is I have no way of really, at least I don't think I have any way of reaching out to that person and saying, hey, what, what do you like about this? I mean, you're willing to put money behind it. So, so you know, your opinion really matters, right? So, so that dialogue isn't there and the friction is just really high. So I think that you're attempting to address some of those things. Well, if you talk to your average developer, they feel bad that they don't support open source in some manner. But truth is, it's very difficult to know how to support 10,000 packages that you use on a day-to-day basis. So indeed, like uh, we're trying to make it so that you can put a certain amount of money in every year, even as an individual. But you know, I think we should be encouraging these big fan companies to put their money where their mouths are with this stuff. Like they make a lot of money out of open source. The open source ecosystem powers the internet more software and as somebody who does open source yourself you know that you could spend a lot more time on it like i assume you made your tool because you wanted it and you want to work on it to a certain extent and we want to make it so that it's possible for you to do so like the whole impetus for it came from i have this library for ios called promise kit that i made years ago and at its peak it was used by a hundred thousand apps and so i was like well if every one of those apps gave me just one dollar a year I could afford to work on it full time and all my other open source take a bit of a salary hit overall, but you know, then I could find some more open source to make. You don't need that much from everyone. You just need everyone to somehow be able to participate. And so that's where we're coming at with what we're doing. And we want to make it so successful that people at Facebook and Microsoft and Google and all these big companies, these talented developers who are basically wasting their time like making algorithms that improve ad consumption how much people participate with like content instead realize that they have a viable option to quit and work on an important piece of open source full time. I want all these people to quit. I want Facebook to seriously run out of developers and I like, have <laughs> problems 
running the company because everyone has quit to do what is better for the entire open source ecosystem, for the entire internet and as humanity as a whole. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I do feel like uh, advertising completely changed the internet and, and just, just the, the software community. I feel like it radically changed. And I don't, you know, I'm not really educated enough on on this to know why to sort of the causal reasoning there and everything but but uh you're right i think if we can sort of bring the economics back to some healthy place then i think we can cause sort of this explosion of of, because there's so many talented people all over the world who 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 uh wake up and 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 install linux for the first time and, and then all of a sudden they're on the vanguard of something um, and, and so if we can support those people, it'd be fabulous. Yeah, that's, that's our mission. Cool. Um, so yeah, we'll be releasing later this year and, uh, we are hiring, but like really our, your listeners, the, one of the better things they can do is when we release, uh, install it, try it out and participate. Like there's going to be a huge open source community built up around it. Just like brew had four people participating in making open source function. And, uh, we, you know, we'll do the same kind of things we did for Brew and make it like somewhere that is a great open source project to be a part of. And uh, well, we'll have we'll have token to uh, facilitate contributions as well. Yeah, I mean, when people hear about cryptocurrency, they usually think about buying in, like buying a Bitcoin or buying a, uh, a Ethereum coin or something like that. Uh, this you know, you don't have to be you know a millionaire to 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 install T. I mean, it's it's not that kind of thing. You can install it. You can get started totally free. Yeah. yeah so it's completely free. Like it's basically a better packaging solution than probably what you're using. And over time, you'll start to see how you can use the crypto and the web free parts for yourself and for the benefit of the entire open source ecosystem. So. Yeah, it will definitely be worth checking out. Cool. All right. Well, when it's released, we will definitely post on our social media, Twitter and LinkedIn and, and all of that and, and get people uh, aware of that. In the meantime, I'm sure you have a mailing list and, and those, those kind of things. If people want to learn more about it and get ready, they can go to t.xyz. That's T-E-A dot X-Y-Z. And uh, thank you so much, Max, for for coming on the show. An absolutely fabulous episode. Amazing. And we covered a topic that is really, really important that shockingly we had never covered before, even in the abstract. So we covered package managers, I think, uh, beautifully. And uh, and I'm really excited about T. And I'll be uh, the first one in line to try and get Eternal Terminal onto, onto T whenever it's ready. So. Well, I hope you do that, Jason. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks again, Max. And thanks, folks out there uh, for listening, you know, supporting the show on Patreon. We really appreciate it. And we will catch everyone in two weeks. Bye-bye. Music by Eric Barndollar. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.